All right, thank you, worship team. Children's Church, you see it's your turn to go on downstairs. Take your Bibles, turn with me as we continue our study in 1 Timothy. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And if you're using the Bibles we have here, uh, our passages today, we're looking at two different ones, will be on page 692 and 693. 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 5, and 20 and 21. How confident are you that you would recognize false teaching? How confident are you that your children, your grandchildren, maybe your close friend, would recognize false teaching. Why do, why do people fall to false teaching? It's often because they're going through something hard and this would seem to help, which makes some sense, right? They come across a book title, they come across a blog, they come across an intriguing uh, podcast, And they begin to read, listen, and follow. Whoever it is that's communicating seems to get you. They they understand what you're going through. You might be that they're talking about how you can be happier and and you're struggling with being happy. Maybe they're telling you how you could have a better financial situation and you're struggling in your finances. They may be teaching you, this is how you take control of your life, and you've just been feeling controlled by everybody else. But it touches a nerve, it touches an emotion, it touches a a need that you're feeling. Or it could be that you or someone you love meets somebody, maybe it's a speaker, or somebody personally, they they just take interest, and you've been feeling ignored. They take interest, they look you in the eye, and then they invite you to something. Come, come hear this speaker, or hey, there's this really unique church, or uh, hey, we're doing this retreat thing. And little by little, you're going to be fed something that is actually far more insidious than we would have imagined. It's false teaching. We're going to talk today in these two passages about detection and protection. How do you detect if something is untrue, and how can you protect yourself from it? Verses 3, 4, and 5 of chapter 6. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words, that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. He's really telling us this is how you detect false teaching. It's basically two things. First, there's the issue of what they teach. The second is how they live. So what is it that they are saying? We've got to hear what they are saying, and we have to have the insight to see the true impact of their life. 
What do they teach? It's called uh, a different doctrine, false doctrine. Literally, the, the, the Greek term is, is different teaching. There, there's, there's the right teaching, and then there's different teaching. And the contrast is very clear. It's a, a contrast with what he calls sound instruction or sound words, sound teaching. The word sound here is, is, is a, like a medical or a health type of term. If you're, you're sound of mind and body, right? So, so that means that you are healthy. And so this teaching would be a, a doctrinal spiritual sickness. And sometimes you can be sick almost without knowing it, right? And false teaching is that way. It's an unhealthy, untrue series of statements or understanding or philosophy or set of ideas. And it's, it's, it's unhealthy, it's wrong because it does not agree with what? The sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching or that it could be teaching that's according to Godliness. So there are two core issues that they get wrong. They get it wrong about Jesus and thus the gospel. It's wrong about Jesus and the gospel, and then it just follows that they will be wrong about what is godliness. So if you if you if you eliminate the cross, if you undermine the cross, you will undermine what godliness and true holiness really is all about. Uh, the teaching that's according to or the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ really seems to say things that Jesus said, the teaching of Jesus Christ. Now, it could also be other truths about Jesus, but Paul actually could be referring here already to New Testament truth. Many times as we're reading the New Testament and we see references to the Scripture, we rightly say, well, what scriptures did they have? If you're reading the New Testament, mostly the scriptures that they had in their hands were what? Old Testament scriptures. However, at this point in Paul writing 1 Timothy, it's a bit later in the apostolic age. We're in the AD 60s. And by now it seems that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three gospels have already been written and were circulating. So the, 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 the words of Jesus officially inspired by the Spirit, have already been there. So this is teaching contradiction to that. And it's teaching this in contradiction to godliness. And again, Old Testament describes so much about godliness, but this could also refer to things that Paul has already taught about godliness. Because as we're reading 1 Timothy, we're t- uh, Paul has already inspired and uh, God has already inspired and Paul has written and sent 10 of his 13 letters from the New Testament. And so those are circulating. So the doctrinal problems of these false teachers is that which contradicts Jesus' words from the Gospels and that which contradicts what Paul has already taught by inspired by the Spirit about what it really means to be godly. False teaching was threatening the church in Ephesus. And just as a little review, the book of 1 Timothy is actually Paul the Apostle writing to Timothy, who is uh, leading at this time the church in Ephesus. It's the first thing he talked about in this letter. It'll be the last thing he talks about in this letter. And actually, there's quite a few other places he is talking about it. 1 Timothy 1.4 is how he started this letter. Timothy commands certain men not to teach 
false doctrines. A little later, holding on to faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Wrong doctrine will bring a shipwrecked life spiritually. And the very last verses we look at today and the last verses of this book are what is falsely called knowledge by professing it, some have strayed or swerved, they've gotten off the road concerning the faith. And then chapter 4 and here early in chapter 3, continually we are seeing Paul is concerned. Paul is concerned about false teaching. And that's why we, 2,000 years later, sitting here, need to be very concerned about what we believe on the subjects of Jesus and the gospel and what it means to be godly. There are so many different entry points to falsehood. One of the first, and we'll talk about it some, is, is, is cults. They clearly have these things wrong, but it is far bigger and broader than that because Satan, who Jesus called the father of lies, doesn't really care where his distribution system is pumping out false information. Probably the biggest one is simply what we could call secularism. Secularism is just simply the way people think. Uh, selfishly, materialistic. Um, you could even say successfulism. I made that word up. But that is like the most common mindset of our world. I need to be successful. I need to have things. I need to... And, and so the truth battles will, will take place when our mind is absorbed with these kinds of things. And, and so we'll abandon... Jesus won't matter and godliness won't matter. The biggest truth battles that Christian families are facing today are not about our health. And they're not about the economy. And they're not about political freedoms. The greatest truth battles are about Jesus Christ and what it means to follow him in godliness. Those are the biggest battles that we are facing. It's what Satan's been doing for 2,000 years since the, this New Testament came and what he's been doing throughout human history. And so we have to, first of all, be careful that, that we are not successful at everything except truth. That we are not somehow achieving all of our goals and omitting the preciousness of knowing what is true eternally. So, so as, as you think about your relationship with the Lord today, be thinking about your relationship with his word because that's how he speaks to us. And to ask yourself, A, do you know the word of God? And B, do you follow it so that someone who knows you, particularly those you influence, family and friends, would say, that's what it means to follow Jesus Christ. It, it is transforming to just know someone who believes the word and follows the word. That is the attraction towards godliness. Anything different leads to shipwreck, as, he, as, as uh, Paul said earlier in this book. So what are they wrong about? False teachers are wrong about Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus and thus, how are we eternally saved? Um, a cult will say, Jesus was a prophet. Or almost anybody will say Jesus was a good man. But a cult will say he's a prophet. In fact, I, I was on, a, on a, a Mormon website 
uh, officially sanctioned website, and they said Jesus is the Son of God. I said, hmm, really? But you dig a little bit deeper, and what they say is not what we think they say. Because they do not believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. They do not believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so it's not the same thing to say he's the Son of God. So just the words themselves will not say everything. What do they truly believe? And the core issue will be, who is Jesus Christ? And that's why one of the things we have to guard against is feeling like a little bit of religion is good. Sometimes I've heard people say things like, well, you know, at least they go to some church, or at least they're, at least they're religious. At least they believe in God. If you don't understand who Jesus is, and you have your faith in Jesus, the only solution to mankind's sin, you really got nothing. And so you could, you could go to, to some uh, religious group or church or organization, and, 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 and they, they talk about love, and they talk about peace, and they talk about uh, They talk about anything except they don't use the scripture because they don't really believe the scripture. And so they really don't have anything. First truth is about Jesus Christ. One of the dangers of of some of the the cults, for example, is that they, they agree with a lot of what we would say are biblical values, even conservative values, and so we begin to see them as, as, as partners on these things. I've seen some examples this week. Go, well, at least we sure agree on this. And if these kind of values have become the most important thing, we could, we could forget the fact that actually they are teaching the very opposite. Satan loves that. Teaching the very opposite about Jesus Christ and salvation. If you're, sometimes the similarities are what's dangerous, if you will. If you're in the hospital and you're hooked up to an IV, you know, you and I, if we're the ones hooked up, we have no idea what's going through that tube, right? It could be something that's giving us life. It could be something that gives us death. And it looks all the same to us. It's just some clear liquid. But it matters what's in the IV tube. And so we have to think in terms of what does this group believe about Jesus? And secondly... Godliness does not agree about godly teaching or literally teaching, a, teaching according to godliness, teaching according to righteousness. If you, if you have moved to this area or at some point you're going to move to another area, I first of all really trust that one of the highest priorities in your mind, if you think God is leading you to a different place, is where will I fellowship? Is there a church that believes the truth? and teaches and seeks to live the truth. That should be the highest priority beyond jobs and schools and everything else that we look at, where is going to be the spiritual center of our life. <clears throat> if you are looking at a website of a church, do you know if you are seeing the truth? First of all, if you don't see a doctrinal statement, that's a bad sign. <clears throat> because if they don't put out there what they believe, you it's likely that those are not the most important things. But what do they believe? And let's say that as you're reading, go, oh, yeah. They, they believe the right thing about Jesus. They believe that he's, he's truly God's son. He paid for our sins. Salvation is through Christ alone. Great. Check that one off. But how about the next step of what it means to be godly? 
As you would begin to read, sometimes between the lines, or, or maybe you're listening to, to some of the, the online sermons or whatever, what are you hearing about what does it mean to be godly? Are you hearing rules? Are you hearing uh, like, like, like guilt and, and shame-based teaching? Where, where the idea is essentially that you are more godly based on what you don't do. That's something, the ditch that we've called, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I think, in, in chapter 4, a ditch called legalism. You can slide into the, the issue of a shame, guilt, uh, kind of a controlling environment of, of the, they got Jesus right, but there's this, this, this heavy guilt base. They have not understood or taught living by grace. The other ditch, something we sometimes call license, that's where grace is abused. And suddenly, like, it doesn't really matter what you do. Because God is gracious, God is loving, and, and so there is no clear ethical or even uh, moral teaching of moral values. So do they teach godliness, that, 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 that through Christ we have a relationship with God, we live to please Him, we live to glorify Him, we live, live to attract others to Him, where there's a, there's a, there's a humble walk with God. Is that what you're, and most importantly, do they believe and base what they believe on Scripture? A 2016 study by uh, the George Barna uh, um, Research Group, so I can only imagine this is even more true, says that 59, only 59% of those who call themselves practicing Christians consider the Bible to contain moral absolutes. And it's not surprising that a different question, completely related, however, 40% said that any sexual relationship between consenting adults is acceptable. And they say they are practicing Christians. Do we understand truth about Jesus and the gospel, which is how you get to heaven, and about godliness, how you live life? So what they teach. You can detect false teaching by what they teach, but verses 4 and 5 make it very clear. You can also detect it based on their character, how they live. If they don't agree in their teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction, do you, see, do you see a character problem here? The first one is that false teachers are conceited or proud. It's a term that uh, is, is like the word cloud or smoke or haze. The, the, we sometimes use a the phrase, they're just blowing smoke. They don't really know what they're talking about. That's this, that's this concept. They might assert it really strong. They, 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 they got this personality and they sound so sure of themselves, but it's like they're living in a haze. They got nothing to back it up. Like they're living this alternate uh, reality of some kind. I think the, the false teachers many times are not even intentionally deceiving, but they have been deceived and they perpetuate what is untrue. During uh, seminary years, I, I remember a, a man who came on campus pulling a cross, I mean a literal cross, a big 10-foot type 
wooden cross with a little wheel on the bottom to make it a little easier. He was walking across America, pulling the cross, using the words of Jesus, take up your cross and follow me, quite literally, but a very deceived and deceiving person. And he preached condemnation and he had little pamphlets telling saying that the way you get to heaven is through being righteous and sacrificial enough and who's more sacrificial than the guy who's walking across America pulling a cross and you sense this this undercurrent of arrogance I'm the I'm the only one that's that's right another trait actually indicates this man that man as well was unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words. Um, they thrive on controversy. Uh, he, he, he was a very argumentative guy to walk onto campus and uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm going to you know, teach all these students. To, now, to be fair, young guys in their early 20s, kind of dogmatic about things they just learned last week can be a bit argumentative. I, I can remember that trait as well, but it was a perfect storm of, of, of controversy and egos and, and arguing that was taking place. That might be extreme examples, but when you think of false teaching, you're thinking of somebody who often has this sense of, I'm right, and I have discovered something that nobody else has. If you ever find the word Bible with the word secrets, beware. Oh, Bible secrets. Ah, oh, you mean finally someone has found the secrets in the Bible. You know, the problem is not the secrets. It's the things that are right there in plain. Often it comes in the, in the guise of biblical numerology, numbers, like, oh, if you take this plus this and divide it by this, and, and you've got all these fancy numbers you're probably listening to false teaching. It's somebody who is conceited and puffed up. It might be words here. It's numbers. And the result then is envy, division, and, and anger. This, this envy, they, 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 crave to be, they crave the attention. And so they make provocative and outrageous statements and, and new stuff. Strife, reviling. They easily get defensive. How dare you question my superior wisdom? Or this term, evil suspicion. Um, actually, the King James, I like the way it puts it, surmisings. It's the word for conjecture. In other words, they, they take something that the Bible says and they make this huge leap of logic, illogic, and anybody who has been regularly in the Word of God would say, wait a minute, how did you get from that to what you just said? And yet if it's something that appeals to your heart, appeals to your need, kind of sounds impressive, how did he work that out? He must be really brilliant. It draws a person in. There's this arrogance. Constant friction, it says. They force people to take sides. You're either with me or against me. If you don't agree with me, you're an enemy. Cults are masters of this as they draw you into a certain kind of a teaching. They would like to put a wedge between you and your family because almost always someone who is being drawn into a cult, their family sees the, the warning signs. 
So they begin to draw, a, 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 put a wedge between you and your family and like, hey, look, this, this is your true family and you can't really, can't really believe them. And they will try to undermine previous teaching from the Word of God, other mentors, other, other people, pastors perhaps in your, in your life. What's the fruit of the Spirit? If, if, if that's all about division and anger, and what's the fruit of the Spirit? It's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and, and, and self-control. Do you see this in the character of the person that you're listening to? Or is there this arrogance, arguing conflict? Here's what Jesus said about false prophets. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. Good metaphor, good metaphor. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A little bit of probably early first century humor there that, you know, that's silly. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Thus, by your fruit, you will recognize them. Interestingly, these verses are often used by Christians saying, this is how you can tell if someone's really a Christian or not. Their fruit, by, your fruits, by their fruits, you'll know them. That's not even the subject. And the way you know if someone is a Christian by what the, is by what they believe, have they put their faith in Christ, not necessarily did they have a, have a bad day and you saw them. So that's not what this is about. This is about how do you recognize false teachers because you dig a little bit deeper and you will find that there are severe character flaws in their life. There is anger, anger and envy and greed and, and so often immorality. Pull away the sheepskin a little bit and you find wolf because the costume's going to slip off eventually. And so the next time that you are... Your interest is, is piqued by some interesting, unique teaching, someone who gets you, someone who, who draws on your heartstrings. Please think through, A, what do they teach about Jesus and godliness? And B, what's really the nature of their character? Similarly, Paul said, For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. Pretend. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Don't forget that Satan makes himself look attractive and good. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. So expect to be drawn in with goodness, essentially. They may sound spiritual, They quote the Bible, they smile a lot, they even talk about Jesus. But what do they really believe? The final section is men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Robbed of the truth, financial gain. Kind of a monetary contrast They're bankrupt, truth-wise. They are bankrupt in terms of truth, but they're after your money. Key characteristic. Key characteristic in anybody who's just a part of the world would be greed. We all struggle with that. 
So you can expect that that is what you will find. Those are the motives you will find in the person who is pursuing teaching you falsehood. There's a money motive. Because spiritual manipulation doesn't only draw in crowds, but if you can draw in crowds, guess what? You can also draw in money. And so ministry is not the motive, but money becomes the motive. Some of you can remember the 1970s and 80s, being in an airport and encountering the Moonies, the followers of Sun Young Moon. They'd be dressed in, in white and uh, selling, selling, giving you flowers for your donation. And uh, Sun Young Moon um, really built a multi-billion dollar empire called the Unification Truth by this means. He died in 2012. I just read this week that his son, Hyung Jin Moon, now leads the Unification Church. Interestingly, he has a, a political message, a, a, a gun rights, a conservative values message. Again, remember, the IV tube similarity can sometimes be the biggest danger because we could be similar about some things, but be in terrible danger, disagreement about biblical things. Imagining, thinking that godliness is the path to great gain. There's a money motive in almost all false teaching. We've all seen the TV evangelists or pleading or, or whatever it might be. So where does, the, where does, where does money fit in? Money is not the problem, and, and, and money is a, a spiritual thing, and God uses money as, as we've talked about here. In fact, the next passage, we're not going to be uh, looking at that, that next, but this last chapter is going to talk about how does, how does godliness and contentment and money and wealth all work together, because God is using those things. He uses it to be able to provide for ministry. He uses money to teach us stewardship. He teaches us generosity. He teaches us trust. Money is a tremendous spiritual tool, but it can become the motive instead of the ministry being the motive. So that's the detection of false teaching. What are they teaching? What do you see as the outcome of their life? We're going to jump to the end because at the very end of the, of the book now, the last two verses, there is one more uh, Focus, Paul, Paul is bookending his letter with this most important thing about false teaching. And he goes from detection, I think, to protection. How do you keep yourself from false teaching? Verse 20, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Basically three statements, guard, avoid, and beware. Guard, avoid, and beware. Guard the deposit, literally, or guard what's been entrusted to your care. We protect ourselves from false doctrine by simply guarding, treasuring the truth. Uh, the term really is a, a financial or, or kind of a material truth uh, or term, like guard the deposit. 
that's your treasure, that might be money, it might be, might be property, but guard that deposit. I'm sure that some of you have, have worked in, in some kind of business where you were responsible to take the, the, the money from the day, uh, retail or whatever, and, and go and deposit at the bank. And, and so you've got this, this zipper pouch thing in your car, and, and there's just something about it as you're driving from maybe the place of business to, to the bank where you just know that you've got this this money. You got, you're a little bit nervous. You've got, you got to take care of this because you want to get it safely to the bank. Or I've pictured some of the times when I bought a, uh, a used vehicle uh, from, from an individual and they want cash, right? So you, you go to the bank and you get this wad of cash like you've never seen, right? Because it's this many thousand dollars. And, and I kind of, you, you take that big wad and you kind of like walk out like this a little bit and you put it in your, in your glove box, and it's like you, you can't stop but think, I, this would be a terrible time to have a wreck, you know, this, I got all this cash. But there's this sensitivity you have because there is something valuable. Do you have that view of the Word of God? As you look across your life and, and all, all the things that, that, that you might have going for you and different assets or whatever, do you guard this deposit like this is what really matters. Turn ahead a page or two to the first chapter of 2 Timothy. Same, same, same man writing to the same man. Only at a different stage of his life. Uh, a few years later, chapter 1, verse 14 of 2 Timothy, he uses the identical terminology, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And again, that's about the faith, the love of Christ, it's, it's the person of Christ, it's the, it's the doctrine of godliness, it's the gospel. Guard it. Because now as Paul is writing in 2 Timothy, he is, at the end of his life, it's the last book he wrote. It's, uh, I fought the good fight, finished the course, um, we don't know the exact story, but it seems that he was martyred during this second imprisonment from which he wrote Second Timothy. So he knew. He knew that his life was almost over. And what's his concern? He says, we have this wad of spiritual cash, Timothy. And that's what we've got to cherish. That's what we have to protect. Guard the deposit. Guard the gospel. Transition is in Paul's mind. Because he's not going to be there. There's a fair number of us in this room that won't be here 20, 30 years from now. That's okay. If you put your faith in Christ, you will be in heaven perhaps. What's going to happen here? What, what, are, what, are, what are these kids going to believe? What, what's their life going to be like? There's a, there's a deposit that we've been entrusted to. The good news is, it's 2,000 years later, and we're still in the Word of God, and I know that you're here because of the Word of God. So Paul's desire and God's plan is continuing. That's the good news. But now it's our turn. Guard the deposit. I've been enjoying uh, teaching the uh, welcome class Again, something we do three times a year. And most of what we do, it's seven evenings and four and a half, five of those are 
going through what does the Bible say about the basic subjects? It's just, it's just Bible doctrine. What does the Bible say about the Bible, about God the Father, about Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about the church, about the end times, about angels and demons, about salvation? What does the Bible say? We have to know that we have to have the core of what do we believe because we are going to be the, 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 the cashiers that deal with the real money so that when the funny money shows up, we go, wait, that's, that's not right. Guard the deposit. Most of you know we've, uh, this fall, restarted our adult Bible fellowships and the kids uh, build Sunday classes. So that's, that's happening next hour, right? Actually, one of the adult Bible fellowships is right now. So we had this long season where we didn't have all these smaller uh, groups together, and uh, so we've restarted. And as most of you know, we've restarted them with different identities, if you will, not the same groups altogether, and so it's all kind of starting over, and it's, it's all just a little bit like church planting, kind of feels like. If you've visited one or two of the adult Bible fellowships, you may be in a sense, you know, man, I don't know that many people. And da, da, da. Adult Bible fellowship. Adults is obvious. Bible fellowships. Fellowship is important. You, you may or may not get too much fellowship just walking in and out, sitting in rows. And so we know we need relationships, but we need relationships that are connected around the Word of God. That, that's the... That's, that's the goal, is that we would, we would get to know one another. And here is the, 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 the power, the exponential value of, of being in smaller groups with other believers. And we can so easily neglect this. When you are with other believers and go through that painstaking process of getting, no, I mean, they're kind of shy, I'm kind of shy, or they're outgoing and, and they're a little bit annoying. And there's a, you, know, all, you go through all of those relational things to get to know each other. But what you begin to find is there is a wealth of experience of other people who are going through the same stuff of life that you are. There's nothing, there's nothing you know, impressive about a group of 20, 30 people getting together. It's, 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 not, it's not about the program, but it's rather beginning to see over the, the, the times that we spend together over months and really years of relationships, you go, I see now how this part of the word of God that's so hard for me to apply right now. They applied it when they were going through cancer, divorce, or, or whatever it was they were going through. And there becomes this, this network of strength that comes because we just plain got to know other normal people who are struggling with the same normal stuff of life. And we've discovered that we go back to the word of God over and over again. And then we want that for our kids. We want that for our kids because there will be an unending flow of shows, movies, commercials, blogs, professors, books that are going to be piling on lies in many cases about the gospel, lies about godliness, changing of values that the scripture teaches. And there's actually no way that in a couple of precious hours that we would have on a Sunday or on the youth nights on Wednesday night, there's just no way we can actually counteract that. But if, but if we can be a source of encouragement that kind of caps off what you as families talk about during the week and how you guys, are, your kids see you reading the scripture and they, they hear that when you're making family decisions, there are priorities that are based upon 
well, we think this is what God wants, and suddenly now they know a whole network of other people who do the same thing and go, this is how we go through this crazy world, because it is. And so we, want to, we, we know we're just a, a small piece in a, in a church ministry, but it seems to be a crucial part to be able to tie us together around the fellowship of God's word that we would protect, guard the deposit. The second phrase is, turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas of what's falsely called knowledge. Did you catch that main verb, turn away or avoid? It's actually not saying do battle with, with lies. It's saying avoid them. If, 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 it, if it looks like a duck and smells like a duck and you don't want duck, just turn away from it. I'm grateful for all the resources of, of really some, some bright Christian minds who, who provide some of the resources for people like you and me to read and, and when we need to really understand what this group believes and what that group believes. But frankly, do we all have to be focused on that? Or should we all be focused on this enough to recognize that? And then turn away from it. Turn away from the babble. It's, it's like children babbling. It just kind of, it, ignore it. We don't, we don't trust the source because we've heard some of the key things that they believe or don't believe. And so we're, we're going to stay guarding the deposit. This chatter is called here godless, or you may have the phrase profane, irreverent, worldly, unholy. It's, it's, the, it's the way the world thinks. It's what they do. So it's a whole mindset, and you recognize it as proud and selfish and greedy, and you go, that's probably not a basis for truth. Many times you can get to know what a person uh, or organization or church is like just by watching what kind of people are drawn to it. Do they tend to be uh, proud, selfish, greedy people? Or sincere, humble, God-seeking people? You can often tell what is actually true by the way people live. Not the only judge, but it's a factor. Because you want to turn away from this falsely called knowledge. It's literally false statements about false information. It's like, it's just wrong. It's untrue. You recognize it. So, beware of the danger, verse 21, which some have professed. In other words, they've bought in. And in so doing, have wandered from the faith. A word that means probably swerved. Maybe it was their ox cart or, or something, but... I'm just, it, it, it's a word for road. It, it, it's, the, it's the idea of a road. You're on a straight road. This is the path. And there's always danger if you swerve off the road. The reason we're all alive here today is because we've pretty much stayed on the road for decades. Because you can't make many mistakes on the road and still be here today. Now, you've all probably had a few fender benders. You've done something and kind of, it, was, it warned you though, didn't it? Like, oh man, I wasn't paying attention. I fell asleep. So, so take these warnings seriously because there are those who become devoted to a swerve 
and they're reckless, and it'll shipwreck their lives. Damage, sometimes spiritually fatal. If you have children that still live with you, or adult children or grandchildren you care about, it's probably hard to imagine that someday they might believe false doctrine. It, 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 maybe it feels so safe right now and they, they go to the youth group or, or whatever it might be. But we have to guard that deposit of truth because we understand the seriousness of the enemy that Jesus called the father of lies. I'd like to close with something hopefully uh, refreshing. I read at the beginning of the service from Psalm 19. And so I'd like to just read a little bit from Psalm 119. Some of you may be acquainted with uh, that psalm. I was reading through the psalms recently, and I come, come across 119, and it's, it's unique among all the different psalms. What's one thing unique about Psalm 119? It's very long. <laughs> In fact, you, you almost can't absorb Psalm 119 at one sitting. It's 176 verses, all but two of them contain the word like the law or precepts or the word of God or commands. All but two of those verses, I think it is, contain it. So it's all about the importance of knowing the word of God. And so it's a, it's a, it's a valuable place to just be absorbed in. Maybe, maybe it's like two, three days worth of, of your personal reading in the scripture. I'd like to, I picked out 10 of my favorites, okay? For whatever they're worth, that describe for me the impact of the Word of God. I've actually, if, if you're interested in this list, I've made some copies on the back. But I guess just to kind of read because we begin to value that which will transform our lives. Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. The opportunities of impurity today are vast. The Word. 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Every one of us struggles with sin in a different way. And sometimes we feel so powerless against it. We need the word of God. Verse 28, my soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Everybody walked in with a burden today. Where, where, where are we going to get the strength to walk through it? 45, I walk about in freedom, for I've sought out your precepts. Everybody, wants, everybody has an idea of what we should do. We, we can feel so, so bound to please other people. We can feel so uncertain because if I do this and does that, but then, oh, but then somehow something about the word of God gives us direction. And you're kind of like, ah, I got freedom now. 99, I have more insights than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. It can seem hopeless when there's so much false teaching out there, but you know what? You don't have to worry about that if you focus on the statutes, then you recognize the other stuff. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. I, 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 can, I can find direction. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know about this and that, but I, when, you, when you're walking in the dark, you don't shine your, your light up in the trees. 
You shine it on the path. You know the next thing that you might need to do. The unfolding of your words give light, gives understanding to the simple. So many people have felt like to understand the Bible, you have to be really smart and you have to know the whole thing. You don't. We can just be simple-minded. Like, just give me the basics and begin to read and begin to absorb and God will give you direction. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands give me delight. How do you have joy in tough things because we're all going through something tough? Great peace have those who love your law. Wouldn't that be a gift? Great peace have those who love your law and nothing can make them stumble or this one. May your hand be ready to help me for I've chosen your precepts. God is eager to help. He doesn't fix everything, doesn't make everything go away. He's eager to help and he's looking for those who are committed to his word. I just just encourage and call you to look at your personal practice, your investment in the word of God. You're probably really good at something there's some area that makes you effective at your job. You, you're really good at this because you know your stuff. And the reason you know your stuff is because it's something you do every day. The only way we're going to know the truth is if it's something that is, is a regular part of our life, a regular investment, and we begin to n- not be experts, just fully aware of the mind and the thought and the desires of God, and they are good for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is certain in an uncertain world. It is truth when we have so many untruths to sort through. Lord, help us to understand the core issues of who you are as our Savior and what it means to follow you with humility and simple obedience. Help us to avoid what is distracting us from the cross, what is distracting us from walking close with you. Help us to be so aware of truth that the lies of the enemy will become obvious. We want to pray, Lord, for our children and grandchildren, for our friends and their children, that, Lord, you would guard this deposit of truth in the coming years so that when we are no longer here, we have confidence that your word will still stand strong and true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.